The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. We begin today with a note about the podcast from dear listener Christina, who writes, quote, The opening, when you whisper, hello, it always makes me feel I have arrived at a darkened castle. And as the heavy wooden door swings open silently, you greet me in the light of a single handheld candle. I am in for a big surprise. Also, the email from the fan who said your voice reminded him of a squirrel. Between the two, it captures everything I love about the podcast. The humor, the anticipation of something great, and the sense that we are all friends here. Oh, man. Oh boy, we are all friends here. Bob Dylan and Charles M. Schultz and the Beatles today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, and let me confess straight away that this is not the episode I intended to have for you today. I want to talk about the Beatles and the new Get Back documentary, and I found my opening. I found what I want to say, not just a review, not just some aspect of the documentary, not just a gush, and not the same old, same old that everyone else has been saying. It is an amazing thing, this Get Back movie. Documentary, what an amazing what piece of content. It's a documentary, it's a biopic, it's a curated window into a period of creativity. It's a narrative, it's historical, it's music. It's hard to say what it is exactly. Is it nonfiction? Is it art? Something to see. Anyway, ignore the categories. And I don't need to bother with that. That's the spirit of Bob Dylan we had last time, right? When we read his speech at the banquet, the Nobel banquet, the night before the Nobel Prize ceremony, he was saying, is my music literature or are my songs literature? Well, thanks for answering that question for me, Nobel Prize Committee. I'm glad I didn't spend too much time worrying about the question. I just did what I did and it all worked out. So when I thought of this episode, I thought, let's put Bob Dylan up front as the appetizer and then do the Beatles as the main course. That would be a good music episode and fitting for our week when we talk to Ernest Suarez and Mike Madison on Monday. We'll do that on Thursday. But it turns out that our leftovers from the Bob Dylan episode are the main course. His Nobel lecture, Nobel, Nobel, no, his Nobel Prize. His Nobel lecture is a feast, a feast of literature, and it deserves its own episode. So we're going to give it here. I'm going to read it to you. It's a beautiful ode to literature from one artist paying homage to the literature that has been important to him, and I hope I will do it justice. But I wanted to start with a quote from Charles M. Schultz, the writer of the Peanuts comic strip, because he had a similar spirit, the spirit of Bob, when he said, hey, is it poetry? Is it music? Is it art? Is it literature? How about I make it and let you guys worry about the rest? That was Bob in his Nobel banquet speech. It reminded me a little of an interview I saw with Charles M. Schultz, where they talked about writing an iconic comic strip and everything that the man had done for children and adults for decades. 
and the holiday specials and the influence he had on other comic strips and the characters of Snoopy and Charlie Brown and so on, the beloved figures and the fight for civil rights. He was able to sneak into the strip and so on. And they sang his praises. The billions of readers, the number of countries, the years of being number one and so on. And he was listening to this long question and he started to cry. And when the interviewer finally paused, he said in a choked up voice, I just did the best I could. So there's that in Dylan too. I joke about how he said thank you. Thank you, Nobel Committee, for answering the question for me. There's something humble in the approach, too. There's something shrewd and savvy, but there's something humble. Shrewd and savvy. Thanks for answering that question for me. It's like when Siskel and Ebert used to argue, and Siskel would say, well, I guess that's why I'm the better critic, and Ebert would say, well, the Pulitzer Prize Committee must have thought otherwise. Right? Ebert's the one who won the prize. Says, well, you know, you can say you're the best and I'll say I'm the best. Why don't we ask the Pulitzer Prize Committee who they thought was the best? Oh, we did. And they told us. It's me. Or when Alan Alda was named the most admired man in America by some woman's magazine and David Letterman said, come on, you finished higher than the president or the pope? Do you really think you're more admired than people like that and Alan Alda? chuckled and blushed and said, no, of course not. Then he added, but then again, who am I to argue with the opinion of millions of women who read that magazine? (laughs) Pocket the victory. Bob says, literature, me, my songs? Well, the Nobel Prize Committee thought so, and who am I to argue? So we'll hear Bob on literature today. But while I was looking for that quote, oh, wait, let me get to my quote here. The one from dear listener Christina that we opened with. What a gorgeous image. The word hello or hello. And she thinks of entering a darkened castle with a heavy wooden door swinging open and a guide with a single candle, me, ushering her in and about to show her something exciting, a surprise in store for her. It's so beautiful. I felt good about myself and my project. People, I have to say, the idea that I've done that for even one listener is just more joy than I can bear. And then her very next sentence is, oh yes, is that plus your voice reminds me of a squirrel, just like that other guy said. And I laughed out loud until I was crying. Tears were rolling down my cheeks. They're kind of... They're coming back in my eyes now, just thinking about it. (laughs) My moment at the top did not last long. (laughs) Her very next sentence, a squirrel. Remember that email? Apparently people think this is a good thing. They're trying to be friendly when they say this. A friendly squirrel, I guess. Bright-eyed, planning for winter. What? (laughs) Alert, what do you even say about that? You have a voice like a squirrel. I can't pocket that as a victory. It's not like saying I'm the most admired man in America or the Nobel Prize for Literature or the Pulitzer Prize recognized me. I can't someday say, oh, well, you you think I'm 
I'm terrible at podcasting. Let me refer you to all the listeners who have said my voice is squirrel-like. Ha ha. (laughs) I don't really understand it, but it seems so typical. So par for the course for your humble podcaster. I get this beautiful image, a guide with a candle. What podcaster wouldn't want to hear that he or she was being identified with something like a surprise, a visit to a, a castle with a surprise in store. It's just wonderful. And then Squirrel City. Mm. So par for the course for your humble podcaster that I now just accept it as my due. When you don't get to eat pie, you begin to think shoe leather tastes pretty sweet. It's better than starving. So here's what we have today. I was looking for the Charles M. Schultz quote about uh, how he did the best he could, and I couldn't find it, but I found something else pretty fascinating and kind of fun. So your humble squirrel gathered it up as squirrels will, and the little guy, the the cheery rodent, will present it to you first. That's going to be nut number one today. And then we will hear Mr. Dillon and his Nobel speech on literature, which takes us into the world of Melville and the Odyssey and other goodness as well. We'll hear how Bob ties himself into the storytellers of the past. That's all coming up after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. So I was looking for the quote and I couldn't find it, but it did lead me to some other good Charles M. Schultz quotes, more than just happiness is a warm puppy, and but there was a flag on the play, and more than my favorite Peanuts cartoon of all, the very first one, which for me is Peanuts at its finest. Charlie Brown is in the distance, strolling toward the two little kids on the sidewalk, and one says, well, here comes old Charlie Brown. Good old Charlie Brown. Yes, sir. That's panel two. As Charlie Brown walks by, smiling, good old Charlie Brown. 
says the little boy as he watches him recede. And then in the final panel, Charlie Brown's gone and the little boy's face turns dark and he says, how I hate him. In addition to those quotes, there was, uh, what else? I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. And all you need is love, but a little chocolate now and then doesn't hurt. Or I have a new philosophy. I'm only going to dread one day at a time. Or this one, kind of nice, a whole stack of memories never equal one little hope. Or this, I don't think God wants to be worshipped. I think the only pure worship of God is by loving one another. And I think all other forms of worship became a substitute for the love that we should show one another. Those are good quotes. Charles M. Schultz was more than just a, an artist. He's not quite Calvin and Hobbes, but he's way above Garfield. My life has no purpose, no direction, no aim, no meaning, and yet I'm happy. I can't figure it out. What am I doing right? Hmm. It's a good quote. Here's what fascinated me when I fell down this rabbit hole. I googled Charles M. Schultz and found the Peanuts wiki page, and it gave this as the biography of Charles M. Schultz, which stopped me in my tracks. Quote, Charles Monroe Schultz was a 20th century American cartoonist, best known worldwide for his Peanuts comic strip. End quote. Best known? <laughs> Only known, right? Wasn't it? I mean, can you think of a single other thing that he was known for other than something that was in some way connected to his Peanuts comic strip? It's, it made me wonder about this phrase, best known or known, right? Best known. It's not, let's say, let's take another artist. Let's take Amy Mann. Do you know her? Singer? Songwriter? You have to say, well, okay, Amy Mann. Hmm, interesting. She's had a bunch of albums. She's written a bunch of songs. She was married to Michael Penn, or maybe she still is. She did the soundtrack for Magnolia. She's won some Grammys. She's worked with different people. You get what I mean. There's a lot of different possibilities here. A lot of reasons to know her throughout a long career. And then you say, yeah, but maybe on balance, if we look at everything, the one thing that probably rises to the top in terms of being known She's probably best known for the 80s mega-hit Voices Carry. When she, 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 sang, she sang when she was in the band Till Tuesday. So she's best known for that. But we know there's a lot of things she's, she's also known for. She could be known for. We know that she's done a lot of other things. That's when we use best known, Right? Or a writer like Norman Mailer, where you say, well, what, what is he best known for? Is it The Naked and the Dead, his first novel? Is it, is it Stabbing His Wife? The Writer Gone Bad? Is it Running for Mayor? Is it Writing Essays for Esquire? Being part of New York's literary scene in the 50s and 60s and 70s? Or The, the Executioner's Song? There's some question about what he's 
best known for. Maybe we'll say he's best known as a novelist and let the essays and the personal life and the politics and all that stand in second place. But this is Charles M. Schultz. He's known for one thing, peanuts. The only thing other than peanuts that I ever knew that he did was Lil Folks, which was just the peanut strip in embryonic form. It had a Charlie Brown and a dog that looked like Snoopy, but it's drawn a little different, kind of like the Simpsons, where you cringe a little, you shiver when you see them because they look a little, they, they look a little bizarre, like, like bizarre versions of themselves. It's just pre-peanuts, little folks. Pre-peanuts. Don't say that phrase 10 times in front of small children, by the way. Peanuts ran every day in American newspapers from October 2nd, 1950 to February 13th, year 2000, which was the day after Schultz had died. 50 years. Almost 18,000 strips. And TV shows that were based on the strips. A million merchandising spin-offs and commercials and films and a play and a trillion greeting cards all based on Peanuts. Nothing else. And everything I knew about him personally was him as the creator of Peanuts. This is where the creator of Peanuts grew up. This is what he looked like. This is what he sounded like. His voice. These are his kids. And there he is, drawing his famous characters, Sally and Linus and Marcy and Peppermint Patty and Pigpen and Franklin and Lucy and Snoopy and Woodstock and on and on. Of course, good old Charlie Brown. How I hate him. Because he is me. Anyway, it staggered me to think that anyone could think of Charles M. Schultz and not say Charles M. Schultz was the creator of the comic strip Peanuts. How could you say Charles M. Schultz was best known as the creator? As, as if there were some doubt. So it made me think, well, did I miss something? Did he build a city I'm not aware of? Or write novels? Did I miss his work as an inventor? Luckily, the Peanuts Wiki provides a page of his non-Peanuts work. This is what he might be known for, if not for the 18,000 comic strips and two of the most famous holiday specials of all time, three if you count Thanksgiving. As a teenager, Schultz sent a drawing of his dog Spike to Ripley's Believe It or Not. They printed it on a page that showed Senor A. Ramirez, Tampa champion cigar smoker, who averaged 10 cigars a day for 65 years, smoking them, that is, not, not making them, Turns out to be 237 cigars that he smoked, which is pretty impressive, I suppose. I suspect he didn't inhale. A little blurb on the page, and Ripley's Believe It or Not says that mercury is a liquid that will not wet anything, and I'm not sure why I wouldn't believe that. I'll take your word for that one, Ripley. There's a drawing of a petrified apple that's 75 years old, owned by... Franklin Pierce in Philadelphia, and I'm not sure why Ripley believed that one. What, what was the proof? How did you know it was 75 years old and not one year old? I'm not sure why Ripley fell for that basketball and Franklin Pierce spelling his name with a Y instead of an I. 
think you were fooling anybody. Well, he did fool Ripley, I guess. Basketball player Glenn Roberts of Pound, Virginia, said this edition of Ripley's Believe It or Not, scored 1,531 points in 80 games. Which, not even 20 points a game, so fine, whatever. I guess that was a big deal in 1937. But the whole thing is a little less impressive when you see the description is that he did this for E&H College, whatever that is, and the drawing of his uniform says E&M. Not a photo of Glenn Roberts, but a drawing and not even an accurate drawing at that. And then on the page, we have a hunting dog that eats pins, tacks, and razor blades. It's owned by C.F. Schultz, presumably C.M. Schultz's father. And there's a drawing of the dog, the hunting dog, with this predilection for eating dangerous metal things with a little bullet or a little caption that says, drawn by Sparky, in quotes. And Sparky is our man. That's Charles M. Little Folks was originally called Sparky's Little Folks. A star was born. But that's not something that rises to the level of being known for that, does it? He wrote a couple of gags that ran in a strip called Just Keep Laughing, and he wrote 17 cartoons that ran in the Saturday Evening Post, and he wrote Little Folks that ran for a couple of years. But all of this is is forgettable, right? It's no way comparable to Peanuts. He also wrote a series of Christian-themed single-panel gag comics called Young Pillars, which I did not know about. That was in the 50s and 60s. And a few books came from it. Still not really getting into anything that would threaten Peanuts for first place here. For a couple of years in the 50s, he worked a, uh, on a strip on Sundays that was about sports called It's Only a Game. I didn't know about that either, but he quit that because the demands of Peanuts were too great. And that's what I found with Schultz. Everything in his life was about Peanuts. He had found his muse and his medium with those characters. They let him say what he wanted to say, and it let him be who he wanted to be. It was his Johnny Carson's Tonight Show and his Garrison Keillor's Prairie Home Companion and his Remembrance of Things Past by Marcel Proust. He didn't have multiple projects, and that just happened to be the one that hit it big. He had one big project. And whenever another impulse cropped up, the big project chopped it down. It was too important to him. I heard a guy talking to Jon Stewart once. I can't remember if it was Louis C.K. or someone like that. And he said, you, you, you're not going to leave. You found your niche with this show, The Daily Show. They'll wheel you out of here like Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show, and you'll ride off into the sunset. And Jon Stewart smiled and looked a little ill. Clearly, he didn't want that to be it for him, and he left the show, and he he directs movies now and does other things. He probably could have done that show forever, but something in him wasn't satisfied with that. Schultz could have done the strip Peanuts for 10 years or 20 or 30 and then moved on. He had plenty of money. There was no reason to continue. Instead, he wrote it until the end. It was who he was. There's power in that, power in the devotion to creativity. And so, although he's best known for Snoopy and Charlie Brown and Linus and all the rest, and he's best known for sharp and biting humor at the beginning and some softness at the end, 
Maybe he should have reinvented himself. He's best known for some true insight and genuine sentiment at times. And crass commercialism and head-scratching licensing decisions at other times. He's best known for peanuts, for good or for ill. Maybe I also know him as someone who's best known, not for being best known, but for being only known. Who's known for one thing and all things considered, was one hell of a good thing to be known for. Let's take our last break and listen to Bob Dylan talk about literature. But before we get there, let's remember where we were last time. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature. But was it literature? Were his songs? You can be glib and say, sure, his lyrics are like poetry. But then you get into the problem that if you print them out and read them, he's not a deserving poet. A hundred others would finish before him. But if you listen to his music, you can't deny they have a power and an effect that are very much like literature. It's a very, it's a literary quality to use words to express ideas, to have insights, to share wisdom, to ask questions. Even if those words are set to music and benefit from his performance and the production and all of that, it's not for nothing, right? It means something. It's some kind of literature, even if it's not a novel or a play or a short story or a poem. Our guests last time addressed that question and said, it's a different category. We'll call it poetic song verse, and it will be broad enough to include the qualities of musicianship and the other features that singer-songwriters use and have available to them. That's the most satisfying answer. It's a hybrid and a middle ground. And it's one that's significant enough to deserve its own way of our talking about it. But what did Bob do before he had the benefit of Mike Madison and Ernest Suarez? He had his predecessors, the bluesmen he sort of tried to include himself among, and the Woody Guthrie's and other folk singer heroes he had. Then he had the Beat Boets and Rimbaud and all his other influences on his poetic mind. What came out of his mouth was different. It was set to music, but his brain was attuned to the same frequency as a lot of other people who tried to get at the truth through words and images. So let's hear about his relationship with literature, what he read, what he enjoyed, and why, and what he thinks about it at the other end of his life, the tail end, as he's looking back. We'll hear all that after this. Nobel Lecture, June 5th, 2017. When I first received this Nobel Prize for Literature, I got to wondering exactly how my songs related to literature. I wanted to reflect on it and see where the connection was. I'm going to try to articulate that to you, and most likely it will go in a roundabout way, but I hope what I say will be worthwhile and purposeful. 
If I was to go back to the dawning of it all, I guess I'd have to start with Buddy Holly. Buddy died when I was about 18, and he was 22. From the moment I first heard him, I felt akin. I felt related, like he was an older brother. I even thought I resembled him. Buddy played the music that I loved, the music I grew up on, country western, rock and roll, and rhythm and blues. Three separate strands of music that he intertwined and infused into one genre, one brand. And Buddy wrote songs, songs that had beautiful melodies and imaginative verses. And he sang great, sang in more than a few voices. He was the archetype. Everything I wasn't and wanted to be. I saw him only but once, and that was a few days before he was gone. I had to travel a hundred miles to get to see him play, and I wasn't disappointed. He was powerful and electrifying and had a commanding presence. I was only six feet away. He was mesmerizing. I watched his face, his hands, the way he tapped his foot, his big black glasses, the eyes behind the glasses, the way he held his guitar, the way he stood, his neat suit, everything about him. He looked older than 22. Something about him seemed permanent, and he filled me with conviction. Then, out of the blue, the most uncanny thing happened. He looked me right straight dead in the eye, and he transmitted something. Something I didn't know what. And it gave me the chills. I think it was a day or two after that that his plane went down. And somebody, somebody I'd never seen before, handed me a Lead Belly record with the song Cottonfields on it. And that record changed my life right then and there, transported me into a world I'd never known. It was like an explosion went off like I'd been walking in darkness, and all of a sudden, the darkness was illuminated. It was like somebody laid hands on me. I must have played that record a hundred times. It was on a label I'd never heard of, with a booklet inside with advertisements for other artists on the label, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, the new Lost City Ramblers, Gene Ritchie, String Bands. I'd never heard of any of them. But I reckoned if they were on this label with Lead Belly, they had to be good. So I needed to hear them. I wanted to know all about it and play that kind of music. I still had a feeling for the music I'd grown up with. But for right now, I forgot about it. Didn't even think about it. For the time being, it was long gone. I hadn't left home yet. But I couldn't wait to. I wanted to learn this music and meet the people who played it. Eventually, I did leave, and I did learn to play those songs. They were different than the radio songs that I'd been listening to all along. They were more vibrant and truthful to life. With radio songs, a performer might get a hit with a roll of the dice or a fall of the cards. But that didn't matter in the folk world. Everything was a hit. All you had to do was be well-versed and be able to play the melody. Some of these songs were easy, some not. I had a natural feeling for the ancient ballads and country blues, but everything else I had to learn from scratch. I was playing for small crowds, sometimes no more than four or five people in a room or on a street corner. You had to have a wide repertoire, and you had to know what to play and when. Some songs were intimate, 
some you had to shout to be heard. By listening to all the early folk artists and singing the songs yourself, you pick up the vernacular. You internalize it. You sing it in the ragtime blues, work songs, Georgia sea shanties, Appalachian ballads, and cowboy songs. You hear all the finer points, and you learn the details. You know what it's all about. Taking the pistol out and putting it back in your pocket. Whipping your way through traffic. Talking in the dark. You know that Stagger Lee was a bad man and that Frankie was a good girl. You know that Washington is a bourgeois town. And you've heard the deep-pitched voice of John the Revelator and you saw the Titanic sink in a boggy creek. And your pals with the wild Irish rover and the wild colonial boy. You heard the muffled drums and the fifes that played lowly. You've seen the lusty Lord Donald stick a knife in his wife, and a lot of your comrades have been wrapped in white linen. I had all the vernacular down. I knew the rhetoric. None of it went over my head. The devices, the techniques, the secrets, the mysteries. And I knew all the deserted roads that it traveled on, too. I could make it all connect and move with the current of the day. When I started writing my own songs, the folk lingo was the only vocabulary that I knew, and I used it. But I had something else as well. I had principles and sensibilities and an informed view of the world, and I had had that for a while. Learned it all in grammar school. Don Quixote, Ivanhoe, Robinson Crusoe, Gulliver's Travels, Tale of Two Cities, all the rest. Typical grammar school reading that gave you a way of looking at life, an understanding of human nature, and a standard to measure things by. I took all that with me when I started composing lyrics, and the themes from those books worked their way into many of my songs, either knowingly or unintentionally. I wanted to write songs unlike anything anybody ever heard, and these themes were fundamental. Specific books that have stuck with me ever since I read them way back in grammar school. I want to tell you about three of them. Moby Dick, All Quiet on the Western Front, and The Odyssey. Moby Dick is a fascinating book, a book that's filled with scenes of high drama and dramatic dialogue. The book makes demands on you. The plot is straightforward. The mysterious Captain Ahab, captain of a ship called the Pequod, an egomaniac with a peg leg pursuing his nemesis, the great white whale Moby Dick, who took his leg. And he pursues him all the way from the Atlantic around the tip of Africa and into the Indian Ocean. He pursues the whale around both sides of the earth. It's an abstract goal. Nothing concrete or definite. He calls Moby the emperor, sees him as the embodiment of evil. Ahab's got a wife and child back in Nantucket that he reminisces about now and again. You can anticipate what will happen. The ship's crew is made up of men of different races, and any one of them who sights the whale will be given the reward of a gold coin. A lot of zodiac symbols, religious allegory, stereotypes. Ahab encounters other whaling vessels, presses the captains for details about Moby. Have they seen him? There's a crazy prophet Gabriel on one of the vessels, and he predicts Ahab's doom. Says Moby is the incarnate of a shaker god, 
and that any dealings with him will lead to disaster. He says that to Captain Ahab. Another ship's captain, Captain Boomer, he lost an arm to Moby. But he tolerates that, and he's happy to have survived. He can't accept Ahab's lust for vengeance. This book tells how different men react in different ways to the same experience. A lot of Old Testament, biblical allegory, Gabriel, Rachel, Jeroboam, Bilda, Elijah. Pagan names as well, Testigo, Flask, Dagu, Fleece, Starbuck, Stub, Martha's Vineyard. The pagans are idol worshippers. Some worship little wax figures, some wooden figures, some worship fire. The Pequod is the name of an Indian tribe. Moby Dick is a seafaring tale. One of the men, the narrator says, call me Ishmael. Somebody asks him where he's from, and he says, it's not down on any map. True places never are. Stubb gives no significance to anything, says everything is predestined. Ishmael's been on a sailing ship his entire life, calls the sh sailing ships his Harvard and his Yale. He keeps his distance from people. A typhoon hits the Pequod. Captain Ahab thinks it's a good omen. Starbuck thinks it's a bad omen, considers killing Ahab. As soon as the storm ends, a crew member falls from the ship's mast and drowns, foreshadowing what's to come. A Quaker pacifist priest, who's actually a bloodthirsty businessman, tells Flask, Some men who receive injuries are led to God. Others are led to bitterness. Everything is mixed in. All the myths, the Judeo-Christian Bible, Hindu myths, British legends, St. George, Perseus, Hercules. They're all whalers. Greek mythology, the gory business of cutting up a whale. Lots of facts in this book. Geographical knowledge, whale oil, good for coronation of royalty, noble families in the whaling industry. Whale oil is used to anoint the kings. History of the whale, phrenology, classical philosophy, pseudoscientific theories, justification for discrimination, everything thrown in, and none of it hardly rational. Highbrow, lowbrow, chasing illusion, chasing death, the great white whale, white as polar bear, white as a white man, the emperor, the nemesis, the embodiment of evil, the demented captain who actually lost his leg years ago trying to attack Moby with a knife. We see only the surface of things. We can interpret what lies below any way we see fit. Crewmen walk around on deck listening for mermaids, and sharks and vultures follow the ship. Reading skulls and faces like you read a book. Here's a face. I'll put it in front of you. Read it if you can. Testigo says that he died and was reborn. His extra days are a gift. He wasn't saved by Christ, though. He says he was saved by a fellow man and a non-Christian at that. He parodies the resurrection. When Starbuck tells Ahab that he should let bygones be bygones, the angry captain snaps back, Speak not to me of blasphemy, man. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. Ahab, too, is a poet of eloquence. He says, The path to my fixed purpose is laid with iron rails whereon my soul is grooved to run. 
or these lines, all visible objects are but pasteboard masks, quotable poetic phrases that can't be beat. Finally, Ahab spots Moby, and the harpoons come out. Boats are lowered. Ahab's harpoon has been baptized in blood. Moby attacks Ahab's boat and destroys it. Next day, he sights Moby again. Boats are lowered again. Moby attacks Ahab's boat again. On the third day, another boat goes in. More religious allegory. He has risen. Moby attacks one more time, ramming the Pequod and sinking it. Ahab gets tangled up in the harpoon lines and is thrown out of his boat into a watery grave. Ishmael survives. He's in the sea floating on a coffin. And that's about it. That's the whole story. That theme and all that it implies would work its way into more than a few of my songs. All Quiet on the Western Front was another book that did. All Quiet on the Western Front is a horror story. This is a book where you lose your childhood, your faith in a meaningful world, and your concern for individuals. You're stuck in a nightmare, sucked up into a mysterious whirlpool of death and pain. You're defending yourself from elimination. You're being wiped off the face of the map. Once upon a time, you were an innocent youth with big dreams about being a concert pianist. Once you loved life and the world, and now you're shooting it to pieces. Day after day, the hornets bite you and worms lap your blood. You're a cornered animal. You don't fit anywhere. The falling rain is monotonous. There's endless assaults, poison gas, nerve gas, morphine, burning streams of gasoline, scavenging and scabbing for food, influenza, typhus, dysentery. Life is breaking down all around you, and the shells are whistling. This is the lower region of hell. Mud, barbed wire, rat-filled trenches, rats eating the intestines of dead men, trenches filled with filth and excrement. Someone shouts, Hey, you there, stand and fight. Who knows how long this mess will go on. Warfare has no limits. You're being annihilated, and that leg of yours is bleeding too much. You killed a man yesterday, and you spoke to his corpse. You told him after this is over, you'll spend the rest of your life looking after his family. Who's profiting here? The leaders and the generals gain fame, and many others profit financially. But you're doing the dirty work. One of your comrades says, Wait a minute, where are you going? And you say, Leave me alone, I'll be back in a minute. Then you walk out into the woods of death hunting for a piece of sausage. You can't see how anybody in civilian life has any kind of purpose at all. All their worries, all their desires, you can't comprehend it. More machine guns rattle, more parts of bodies hanging from wires, more pieces of arms and legs and skulls where butterflies perch on teeth. More hideous wounds, pus coming out of every pore, lung wounds, wounds too big for the body, gas-blowing cadavers, and dead bodies making retching noises. Death is everywhere. Nothing else is possible. 
someone will kill you and use your dead body for target practice. Boots, too. They're your prized possession. But soon they'll be on somebody else's feet. There's froggies coming through the trees, merciless bastards. Your shells are running out. It's not fair to come at us again so soon, you say. One of your companions is laying in the dirt, and you want to take him to the field hospital. Someone else says you might save yourself a trip. What do you mean? Turn him over. You'll see what I mean. You wait to hear the news. You don't understand why the war isn't over. The army is so strapped for replacement troops that they're drafting young boys who are of little military use. But they're drafting them anyway because they're running out of men. Sickness and humiliation have broken your heart. You were betrayed by your parents, your schoolmasters, your ministers, and even your own government. The general with the slowly smoked cigar betrayed you too, turned you into a thug and a murderer. If you could, you'd put a bullet in his face. The commander as well. You fantasize that if you had the money, you'd put up a reward for any man who would take his life by any means necessary. And if he should lose his life by doing that, then let the money go to his heirs. The colonel, too, with his caviar and his coffee. He's another one. Spends all his time in the officer's brothel. You'd like to see him stoned dead, too. More Tommies and Johnnies with their whack-for-me daddy-o and their whiskey in the jars. You kill twenty of them, and twenty more will spring up in their place. It just stinks in your nostrils. You've come to despise that older generation that sent you out into this madness, into this torture chamber. All around you, your comrades are dying. Dying from abdominal wounds, double amputations, shattered hip bones, and you think, I'm only twenty years old, but I'm capable of killing anybody. Even my father, if he came at me. Yesterday you tried to save a wounded messenger dog, and somebody shouted, Don't be a fool. One froggy is laying gurgling at your feet. You stuck him with a dagger in his stomach, but the man still lives. You know you should finish the job, but you can't. You're on the real iron cross, and a Roman soldier's putting a sponge of vinegar to your lips. Months pass by. You go home on leave. You can't communicate with your father. He said, you'd be a coward if you don't enlist. Your mother, too, on your way back out the door, she says, you be careful of those French girls now. More madness. You fight for a week or a month, and you gain ten yards. And then the next month, it gets taken back. All that culture from a thousand years ago, that philosophy, that wisdom, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, what happened to it? It should have prevented this. Your thoughts turn homeward, and once again you're a schoolboy walking through the tall poplar trees. It's a pleasant memory. More bombs dropping on you from blimps. You've got to get it together now. You can't even look at anybody for fear of some miscalculable thing that might happen. The common grave... There are no other possibilities. Then you notice the cherry blossoms. 
and you see that nature is unaffected by all this. Poplar trees, the red butterflies, the fragile beauty of flowers, the sun. You see how nature is indifferent to it all. All the violence and suffering of all mankind, nature doesn't even notice it. You're so alone. Then a piece of shrapnel hits the side of your head, and you're dead. You've been ruled out, crossed out. You've been exterminated. I put this book down and closed it up. I never wanted to read another war novel again, and I never did. Charlie Poole from North Carolina had a song that connected to all this. It's called, You Ain't Talking to Me. And the lyrics go like this. I saw a sign in a window walking uptown one day. Join the army, see the world, is what it had to say. You'll see exciting places with a jolly crew. You'll meet interesting people and learn to kill them too. Oh, you ain't talking to me. You ain't talking to me. I may be crazy and all that, but I got good sense, you see. You ain't talking to me. You ain't talking to me. Killing with a gun don't sound like fun. You ain't talking to me. The Odyssey is a great book whose themes have worked its way into the ballads of a lot of my songwriters. Homeward Bound, Green, Green Grass of Home, Home on the Range, and my songs as well. The Odyssey is a strange, adventurous tale of a grown man trying to get home after fighting in a war. He's on that long journey home, and it's filled with traps and pitfalls. He's cursed to wander. He's always getting carried out to sea, always having close calls. Huge chunks of boulders rock his boat. He angers people he shouldn't. There's troublemakers in his crew. Treachery. His men are turned into pigs and then are turned back into younger, more handsome men. He's always trying to rescue somebody. He's a traveling man, but he's making a lot of stops. He's stranded on a desert island. He finds deserted caves and he hides in them. He meets giants that say, I'll eat you last. Then he escapes from giants. He's trying to get back home but he's tossed and turned by the winds. Restless winds, chilly winds, unfriendly winds. He travels far, and then he gets blown back. He's always being warned of things to come, touching things he's told not to. There's two roads to take, and they're both bad, both hazardous. On one you could drown, and on the other you could starve. He goes into the narrow straits with foaming whirlpools that swallow him, meets six-headed monsters with sharp fangs. Thunderbolts strike at him. Overhanging branches that he makes a leap to reach for to save himself from a raging river. Goddesses and gods protect him, but some others want to kill him. He changes identities. He's exhausted. He falls asleep, and he's woken up by the sound of laughter. He tells his story to strangers. He's been gone 20 years. He was carried off somewhere and left there. Drugs have been dropped into his wine. It's been a hard road to travel. 
In a lot of ways, some of these same things have happened to you. You too have had drugs dropped into your wine. You too have shared a bed with the wrong woman. You too have been spellbound by magical voices, sweet voices with strange melodies. You too have come so far and have been so far blown back. And you've had close calls as well. You have angered people you should not have. And you too have rambled this country all around. And you've also felt that ill wind. The one that blows you no good. And that's still not all of it. When he gets back home, things aren't any better. Scoundrels have moved in and are taking advantage of his wife's hospitality. And there's too many of them. And though he's greater than them all and the best at everything, best carpenter, best hunter, best expert on animals, best seaman, his courage won't save him, but his trickery will. All these stragglers will have to pay for desecrating his palace. He'll disguise himself as a filthy beggar, and a lowly servant kicks him down the steps with arrogance and stupidity. The servant's arrogance revolts him, but he controls his anger. He's one against a hundred, but they'll all fall, even the strongest. He was nobody, and when it's all said and done, when he's home at last, he sits with his wife and he tells her the stories. So what does it all mean? Myself and a lot of other songwriters have been influenced by these very same themes, and they can mean a lot of different things. If a song moves you, that's all that's important. I don't have to know what a song means. I've written all kinds of things into my songs, and I'm not going to worry about it, what it all means. When Melville put all his Old Testament, biblical references, scientific theories, Protestant doctrines, and all that knowledge of the sea and sailing ships and whales into one story, I don't think he would have worried about it either what it all means. John Donne, as well, the poet-priest who lived in the time of Shakespeare, wrote these words. The cestos and abydos of her breasts, not of two lovers, but two loves, the nests. I don't know what it means, either, but it sounds good. And you want your songs to sound good. When Odysseus in the Odyssey visits the famed warrior Achilles in the underworld, Achilles, who traded a long life full of peace and contentment for a short one full of honor and glory, tells Odysseus it was all a mistake. I just died, that's all. There was no honor, no immortality, and that if he could, he would choose to go back and be a lowly slave to a tenant farmer on earth rather than be what he is, a king in the land of the dead. That whatever his struggles of life were, they were preferable to being here in this dead place. That's what songs are, too. Our songs are alive in the land of the living. But songs are unlike literature. They're meant to be sung, not read. The words in Shakespeare's plays were meant to be acted on the stage, just as lyrics and songs are meant to be sung, not read on a page. And I hope some of you get the chance to listen to these lyrics the way they were intended to be heard, in concert or on record or however people are listening to songs these days. I return once again to Homer, who says, 
Sing in me, O muse, and through me tell the story. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My apologies to the Beatles who got bumped. Sorry, my friends. You will have to wait your turn. The squirrel only has so much space. Ah, the squirrel. Why can't I just be the guy in the darkened castle? That's such a cool image after all that good discussion of literature. Bob Dylan, who knew? Who knew he was such a reader and how important those books were to him? Wasn't that great? Ah, nobody called him a squirrel. Well, oh well, I guess I shouldn't complain. It was intended with kindness and I will take it as such. We can't all be George Clooney. The world needs international, humanitarian, good-looking movie stars. And it needs a few... Chipper Rodents, too, I suppose. Well, okay, we've got some good shows coming up, so please do subscribe to the podcast or follow or whatever it is they're asking you to do these days. Come back to make sure you don't miss anything. We'll have Evelyn Waugh and Robert Hayden and some more Oscar Wilde and a look at dragons, zombies, and hell. Sylvia Plath, Langston Hughes, and Oedipus and Sigmund Freud. They are all on our list for December and January, maybe a few spilling into February, but for Christmas, we have a special guest and a look at the nativity story as you've never heard it before. And we're going to have some Rilke. All good, people. It is all good. And we'll get to the Beatles and we'll get to Yates. Some of Yates's greats. How about that? Maybe a new... Ah, the Beatles. Maybe a new theory for the Beatles, or maybe, hopefully, a new approach. One you haven't heard a million times, even if you're a a junkie like me. Okay, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>